So it can't be an a priori position. It has to be a reactive position. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, it doesn't have sort of a notion of the good that it strives towards, by which it defines it's bad. Hey yo, what is going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I am Troy Polidori. And apparently, Troy just told me that we got a review saying that we're grifters, so we should just say this out loud, that we are grifters, straight <laughs> up. Uh, give, give us your money. We're looking for that fuck you podcast money. This is what I was saying to Troy off the air. I said, well, how are we grifters? Grifters are usually like dishonest about their intent. I have made no shy or hidden reserve. I, I've never held anything back about looking for that chapo money. So I don't know how we're grifters. Just pay us, man. This is like prosperity gospel, but in podcast form. Yeah, I mean, I was saying that um, maybe the the new grift is that you admit you're a grifter up front and then the person is so... <laughs> beholden by your sincerity that they're like you know what at least they admit to it so we should just keep giving them money that's right that's right yeah exactly because then they maybe it's like reverse psychology if you say you're a grifter then they're like oh but he's not because he's so honest about his struggles he's in rehab you know <laughs> so he's he's in rehab for being a grifter so let's let's support him in his journey getting out of his gri grifterness yeah, here's the reasoning technically a grifter would not tell you they're a grifter so if they do tell you're a grifter they're not a grifter Oh, that's right. That's this right. This is great deductive reasoning here. Ah, so when I say we are grifters, that's on you, the audience, to figure out what the fuck is going on here. <laughs> anyway, thank you guys so much for tuning in to another episode. This week we are going to be talking about antinatalism, which comes in a couple of different forms. But what is the quick summary form that people can look forward to, Troy? Yeah, so we're doing it based on an article from The Guardian, um, which is really just more of like a encapsulation of a small internet movement type article, as you'll see nowadays. The basic idea behind antinatalism is to be against births of <laughs> all kinds, but specifically of humans. There's some arguments that um, giving birth to babies is bad, specifically, uh, specifically for the babies and maybe even for the world at large. So we'll discuss the variations of that and the arguments for it and what we think about it. Cool. Sounds good. Uh, but before we get into that, just want to give a quick reminder that if you do want to support our grift and you find value in what it is that we're <laughs> producing, please go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. That's patreon.com slash owls at dawn. And there are some various tiers there where you can support us to get access to bonus material, bonus episodes, as well as the monthly newsletter and the democracy motherfuckers tier where you can recommend a topic for a future episode, which we will be opening up so this week, if you are a patron, we will be opening up a comment section on Patreon so where you can go in and you can suggest topics. And then Troy and I usually look through them and we pick the top three or four that we feel like we can adequately address. And then we will open up a poll. So we'll probably do this for, let's say, a week or two where we will have this, uh, have this comment section open um, where you can just comment down below the post. And then in a couple weeks, then we'll open up the poll and we'll actually do the proper poll. But Rush over there and make sure you give us your suggestions in that Patreon post. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we don't have any new review questions, right? But if right. you do, give them, give them the spiel. What, what, what do we do? 
Yeah, so if you give us a five-star review and don't call us grifters, I guess you can call us grifters if you want. As long as it's I mean, we stars. still we gave you a shout-out uh, even when you <laughs> called us grifter, whatever your name was. Thank you. Yeah, so do that on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever. And if you want to ask a question in that review, as long as it's something we can answer in a couple of minutes, we will do so on air on the next episode. Yeah. Well, all right, let's stop fucking around and let's get into the main meat of things. We've got to start off with the shitty minute. This is where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that is pissing us off from the previous week or a couple weeks or cumulative over your entire life or whatever it is. Just <laughs> unload, Troy. My What's life shitty down? minute. Your life shitty minute. So, I mean, I'm having a hard time with this one because I think it's pretty, it was pretty clear to me what my shitty minute was going to be um, over the last couple of weeks. But I'm having trouble really putting together what to say about it other than just that it sucks and I wish it would go away. Mm. Um, But then I also have some misgivings because there's something about it that I think is also points at an important, um, an important matter that needs to be discussed. So let's stop talking about vagaries here. (laughs) This whole okay boomer thing. Uh. It's just, it's really annoying, right? Like, did any, has any meme become more annoying more quickly than that? And I noticed the point is that it's supposed to just be dismissive. Like, it takes someone yeah. who is usually an older white man um, leveling some presumably bad faith critique or disuninformed critique of younger generations or whatever and just dismissing it by saying, okay, boomer, right? And then it's it was hilarious at first that so many boomers were getting really upset about it to the point where that one <laughs> thing came out where a workplace sent an email or like a memo out to the um, the employees of the of the, yeah that you can't use the term boomer it's like a <laughs> it's like a derogatory term or something that is so good class based derogatory term or whatever um, which is hilarious uh, and then it immediately just became super annoying. Right, because it doesn't have any like real content to it, especially when it's used as a placeholder for actual substantive critique. So, I don't have a lot to say about the OK Boomer thing, other than it was funny for a second. Really, it doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't help in any way. It's not going to be funny anymore because it's old, or it became old two days after it was first like a thing. Right. So mm-hmm. I just want to say to everyone out there who is called a millennial, even if they're a Gen Xer, a millennial, or a Gen Zer, because everyone who's under 50 is millennial, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the mantra that you should work through. Structural critique, not meme chic. All right? Mm-hmm. Okay, boomer is meme chic. Like, that's fine in your, like, after hours, right? When you're partying at night, you can go with the meme chic. But when you're at your day job, when you're in the streets... Go with the structural critique, all right? Don't say, okay, boomer. Give some actual structural critique. Structure in the streets, memes in the sheets? Yeah, maybe. Cool with that. I think you should do structural critique everywhere. But if you have to do the meme chic, you do it in the sheets, not in the streets. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, not a lot. I'm not going to rant. There's not a lot to say here because the, the okay, boomer thing is pretty contentless, right? So what can you really say about it? Yeah, okay. So it might be contentless. But similar to the boo, there is some propositional content in there, right? And so it mm-hmm. is a dis it is a dismissive, like you said. It is the like you're out of touch, 
um, or you just don't get us, but it's couched within this like formal, affective, emotive, aesthetic, right? And so what I wonder is, is there actually something like affectively galvanizing in an age that is rapidly becoming um, defined more by aesthetics? And I mean that in the broadest sense, not just simply like branding or superficiality, but I also mean feeling and um, and and kind of like opening up to the sensations. Do you think that there's something valuable in that? I'm not sure where you're going with that. Can you say more? Well, what I wonder is we seem to be in living in an age, or at least I, th- I, would, I would contend that we're living in an age that is very uh, affectively oriented, emotively oriented, um, sensationally oriented. And I'm not using those terms as epithets. So what I wonder is, is just the kind of like dismissive, snarky, okay, boomer, it might not it might not be a good substitute for structural critique, but nevertheless, does it do something valuable in that it is a nice like it's a nice like ubiquitous and common galvanizing affective aesthetic uh, critique, but without content, but just in its like formal affective tone. And is there not something valuable in that? I'm just being devil's advocate here. Yeah, I don't think there is. And here's the issue. <laughs> it's it's directed it's maybe mostly did you just okay work. did you just okay millennial me <laughs> <laughs> okay esthetician okay, okay theory dude <laughs> that's what analytic philosophy is going to do now whenever they uh, come across yeah. a capital t theory person okay that's theory. right um so it may be mostly contentless but it is directed specifically at certain kinds of people right so and this is really the kind of issue that annoys me the most is Boomers are not like the problem, right? As a, like a like a generational whole. First of all, because that generational whole is purely arbitrarily marked, right? Yeah, generational um, science or generational strategy. Uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Stratigraphy is bullshit. Like taxonomy, yeah, like that's it's, yeah. it's bullshit. It's it's basically just a helpful heuristic that oftentimes isn't that helpful. Um, so yeah, there's there's so many differentiations within you know being a boomer or whatever that it's, it's unhelpful and also. You, you mentioned the phrase here, out of touch, which I think is a really good way of capturing what tends to be behind this boomer thing. It's accusation of being out of touch, right? Joe Biden came out, I think, yesterday or the day before and said something like he would not legalize marijuana because he still thinks that there's – he almost put it like in a double negative. There's no evidence that it's not a gateway drug, which was a weird way of <laughs> putting it. Maybe he's like trying to like safeguard himself by using a double negative there. But um, – and so he had a lot of accusations of being out of touch and losing the youth vote. I kept thinking, look, dude, like the problem is not that he's out of touch, it's that he's wrong, <laughs> right? So um, he, he's just factually wrong on the matter. That's what you should be critiquing, not because he's like doesn't understand what young people are talking about with the memes and the such, the memes or whatever, right? Um, mm. And that's what I think the OK Boomer thing is about. It's really about accusing older people of not understanding younger people in like some superficial way of understanding, not in terms of like, um, like understanding like what our interests and our needs are, but in terms of just not understanding like what it's like to be us, like in the Nagel sense, right. Or something like that. Um, and that's just, I think wrong. Like that's, that's not a good critique. You need to actually show why the person is wrong. Like all the ideas that they have are incorrect and why they are bad 
not just that they're out of touch. They don't appeal to your um, uh, like like sensory faculties, like cultural or preference or whatever. So that's yeah. that's the thing is is but, is it seems like your critique is that the OK Boomer meme basically just reinforces a type of generational relativism rather than a cultural relativism, right? And it's yeah. like, oh, well, you're just out of touch with what we prefer and our tastes and our likes, but your generation just needs to go away. Whereas you're saying, no, 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 let's actually like find whatever it's snappy, it's funny as a superficial kind of branding critique in its meme form, but let's actually do something legitimate here and not think that we're actually doing something because we're not actually doing anything except actually it could be kind of um, counterproductive even because if you are just like reinforcing a type of uh, – cultural relativism or generational relativism, then you might fall into that passive nihilism that we talked so extensively about when we went through the Prozorov book, right? Yeah, I think you do. And it's pretty obviously enacted by the fact that the response to the OK Boomer thing is not to retort with any sort of argument. It's just to yeah. say you're being mean <laughs> or something, right? <laughs> um, the, the, if you have this kind of generational relativism behind your remark ultimately you're not actually making an accusation you're just like stating a fact like you have different preferences than i do given your generational status or something which of course the retort to that should just be i don't care <laughs> like why would i care if you have if you have this sort of generational relativism behind um your remark then that's just a, like what are you going to do about that clearly yeah. one generation has more power than the other so you can't really enforce your generational preferences the whole thing just ends up with this like completely pacified, and I think the term passive nihilism is effective here, because uh, it, it pacifies you from action. It doesn't give you any practical syllogism to use, whereas structural think, critique can. Do you think there's a bad faith here too? Because in this pacifism that people are feeling, maybe it's a response because they feel so impotent. So what they have to resort to is kind of like the okay, bro, whatever. But really inside, they are actually bothered. And they are recognizing that they're against a powerful other. And so they they kind of just resort to this reactive, um, supposed uh, apathy. But it's not really apathetic at all. So there's almost like a dishonesty here as well, maybe. What do you think? Yeah, I can see that. You know, it's, it's complicated. Like, there's this notion that... Um, a, like a good way of critiquing power is to just not recognize it, right? Not show it deference or whatever. Yeah, doesn't Agamben right. talk about that, like with destituent power? I don't know, does he? Uh, <laughs> I don't yeah, remember that. It's been a long time since I've written Agamben. <laughs> I think um, so, but yeah. But yeah, and like there's this like classic notion culturally, especially in America, that you know the best way to critique Hitler was for Charlie Chaplin to dress up like him and fall downstairs or whatever, yeah. right? Um, and I think, well, there's... There may be something helpful in that. I think we're seeing some of the holes in that idea of protest um, recently in the sense that sometimes those in power actually don't give a shit, <laughs> right? Mm, um, yeah. They don't give a shit if you like flaunt the fact that they're uncool. Um, if, you know, SNL makes fun of them every week. Yeah, Trump gets pissed off and tweets about it or whatever, but does it make any actual difference? Uh, the people behind the scenes don't really give a shit. Um, so I think we're seeing some of the cracks in that idea. It doesn't mean it's entirely bad or anything. I'm not saying like saying, okay, boomer makes you like bad or, you know, um, unable to be helpful towards like making things better in the world. But I do think by itself, it's, it sort of shows a sort of lack of understanding of, um, how to do social critique in such a way that you can actually, uh, make progress towards changing things.
Yeah, I was talking about this with, remember Darius, who was a guest on our podcast a little bit yeah, ago? Yeah. Talking with him actually about this earlier today, and he's been really into like meme magic and kind of like analyzing what's going on with the, uh, the kind of like alt-right subculture, subreddit, 4chan, 8chan, uh, meme production factory, we might call it. And he says there's something really interesting that's going on with the the kind of far right in their production of memes and the lack of a response or an opposition to that on the far left, right? Like the center left and the center right, like they kind of don't know what to do with this far right meme production factory thing. Um, like, you know, you have all those protesters that I guess that are showing up at like Donald Trump Jr. and Charlie Kirk's like public speaking events and they're having to like alter their public events because of these dudes that are showing up and just like speaking out and asking them questions about like Israel and shit like that, right? <laughs> and uh, like these uncomfortable questions that supposedly other right-wing people would like not dare to broach, but they're kind of like, oh, fuck you guys, you know? And they're just kind of like throwing grenades into the system. But he was talking about how it doesn't seem that there's like really an adequate response on the left and we were kind of thinking like well is that the job of the left to engage in that type of like like a post-ironic nonchalance or apathy or um dismissiveness or passive nihilism like can you be on the left and engage in that type of meme production i mean it seems very difficult right especially if you are going to be sincere if you are going to try to be authentic like it seems that almost like the formal and affective constitution of memes is antith antithetic to the pro the project of being on the quote unquote left. So it, it's kind of it almost seems difficult that if OK Boomer is supposed to be a political project, that it seems to kind of like formally actually betray be betraying itself because it seems to be kind of engaging in the very thing that like a sincere and authentic leftward project of like social reconstruction or reconstitution would actually be oriented towards. Yeah, you know, dude, we were talking before the podcast, before we started recording, about, this will be funny for the audience, I think, when was the last time that we yelled, but not in mm -hmm. jubilation, <laughs> like in rage or anger or some other negative emotion, right? Um, and both of us are just not the kind of people who yell very often. And part of that's just privilege, right? I mean, we haven't had circumstances where we've been powerless to the point where yelling actually seemed necessary to like move on to the next second. Right. Uh, right. which is oftentimes the, you know, motive, uh, motivation behind yelling. So a lot of that's just privilege. Um, but then also it's personality as well. And okay. Boomer thing is kind of similar, right? Like there's some sense in which it, it deals with a symptom, uh, like an immediate symptom without getting to that underlying issue. Um, and it's going to, which means that that symptom is going to re-arise um, at any moment after that. Mm. And so, yeah, there's just something there that I think shows the the weakness of the idea. But then also, yeah, I, I don't really know what to do with this whole, like, what do you do about the memes thing? I just, I just feel like I'm so, I'm so far away from any desire to engage in that, that I, I have some bias against it that I don't, mm. it makes me not want to expound too much on, on its efficacy. Um, and I certainly wouldn't have predicted the way that the right's gone with the meme production thing. That's been totally out of the blue for me. So I don't feel like I, I can say much about it. But I yeah. do think there's some sense, and, and tell me if you agree, that a lot of this just seems to stem from alienation. Um, and so part of me wants to say, well, if, if a lot of this meme production stuff stems from alienation, I don't know that engaging in it purposefully 
um, or strategically is the best way of going about combating the alienation. Really, we should get towards the causes, right? The structural causes of that alienation and resolve those first, and then you won't see those symptoms rise up anymore. But that, and I mean, I, I'm not sure if that's, if that's the best way of thinking about it. I mean, I, I don't have a settled opinion, but just on the surface, that, that seems, you know, like the, the right strategy moving forward, you know? It's also not immediate, though, it's the problem, right? Like, it doesn't solve the structural problems. It's like, you know, cure cancer. Well, okay. <laughs> if I could do that, I would. But right now, we have right. to deal with the fact that I had this cough that's you know, making me cough up my lungs. So sometimes you have to deal with the symptom because the disease is too big for immediate action. Um, so yeah, there's, a, there's an avenue for that too, and I don't really know what that would look like, but, um, yeah, complicated one. Okay, millennial. Yeah, we are millennials in our thirties. Yes, yes. Although, like I told you before, I was told by younger millennials that I just don't get the internet because I'm too old. Probably right. I don't get the internet. <laughs> yeah, I know. Here I am complaining, and yet the shit posters were right once again. <laughs> All right, so should we jump into this main segment here? Yeah, let's do it, brother. Give us the lowdown. So we're doing this based upon an article that was in The Guardian this week um, called I Wish I'd Never Been Born, The Rise of the Anti-Natalists. It's by Rebecca Tuhis Dubro in The Guardian. And the basic structure of the article is just mostly informative. It's not a, an opinion editorial or anything. Just uh, detailing... Um, some of the major uh, popular figures, at least, in antinatalism. Um, the the YouTube star who I'd never heard about, Dana Wells, who's known as the friendly antinatalist, which I think is pretty hilarious. Um, as well as one of the more uh, sort of academic um, leaders, African or South African philosopher David Benatar. Um, and... The basic idea, as I take it behind, uh, behind antinatalism, especially arising out of sort of this despair and despondency coming from um, news about climate change for the last 10 years maybe, is that giving birth basically guarantees there being a lot of harm being brought into the world. And that can come at the um, through the subject of the actual baby being born. They're going to sort of live a life where there are more harms than benefits. And so that's a bad thing. And also in terms of if you bring a baby into the world, that's one more consumer of you know, fossil fuels. Um, and that brings more harm to future generations as well as to you know, non-human animals and nature. And so birthing in general is thought to be a harmful activity in these several different ways. And so therefore we shouldn't have births. And uh, it's more complicated than just that, but that seems to me to be the, the basic idea that I think most antinatalists share. you agree? Mm. Yeah, I think so. Although, like, there's, um, there are, like, different degrees of it, right? Like, even the article talks about how there are some that are far more radical. It's, like, any kind of life. So that, like, some of them are even vegan, um, you know, because any, any, any harm caused to sentient life whatsoever... Um, is viewed as something that needs to be eradicated and all sentient life deals with it. So like all, all species need to be extinct. Right. So some of it goes like super fucking radical. 
yeah, there's some contradictions there, right? In, in terms of in the movement, um, yeah. uh, you know, one side will be like, well, we're harming non-human animals in nature by bringing in consumers of fossil fuels, so don't give birth to human babies. And then another side will actually say, no, actually, those things going extinct is better for them because they live lives that are full of uh, more harm than than benefit. So uh, it's actually good that we're slowly going extinct. So there's yeah some interesting wrinkles in the different views there um, that share a certain common point, but then come to different conclusions. Yeah. 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 It was really interesting. So I also, you know, because we talked about um, the Schopenhauer essay on the sufferings of the world. And then we've also talked a lot about the movie First Reformed, which both you and I saw and enjoyed. And I think both of those, the article and the film address this in the two different ways. The Schopenhauer article or essay is more of like a a metaphysical, moral theory um, on, he even says this at some point, like, you know, that there is, like, you shouldn't bring people into the world because you're just going to cause them harm because of this, like, in, inevitable suffering that uh, they will have to endure. And then the film First Reformed is more of like that climate justice, like, hey, how can I bring a child into this world knowing that I'm going to um, potentially cause some sort of stress on the planet? where because I'm a hardcore environmentalist, I should be trying to alleviate that stress. So there's a different there's a different approach to this. Like one is kind of more metaphysical, foundational, moral, and the other is almost more like uh, contingent, historically contingent, like on another timeline or under different historical material conditions, then it wouldn't be such an issue. Whereas Schopenhauer, it seems like, no, this is an absolute. Like this is an a priori fact of the world. And then the kind of more like environmental side is like, no, it's just because of the world that we have constructed, maybe because of the capital scene or something. So those seem to be actually two very different approaches to an antinatalist program. Yeah, and you know, the former that you're talking about, the more Schopenhauerian version, it's not entirely a priori, right? Because it takes some um, license in terms of an empirical claim about what human life is like in general. Mm. Um, and then from there on, uh, it makes um, some more or less a priori claims uh, about you know what's good and right in terms of ha- like having a life, but that seems to be the key issue, right? There's this general sense, which is based on an empirical claim, that life is full of more on balance, more harm than benefit, mm. and that's a really interesting claim, I think, because well, one, it's empirical, right? But it's in- almost impossible yes. to actually quantify. Because it goes into like the phenomenological qualities of experience, which it, I mean, I guess we can quantify that in some sense, but not sort of holistically. Um, and I don't know that it's wrong. I, I may actually be correct. There's something to the idea of just that bare claim by itself. But there's, you know, we tend to experience harms to a greater degree than pleasures. I think that's probably true. And we certainly remember. I think the harms may be more than the pleasures. Um, mm. Maybe. Um, and certainly different personalities like play a role here, right? Um, but it, it could very well be true that there is on balance more harm than good in the world in terms of qualities of experience. And so if you're judging it based upon qualities of experience, uh, which seems to be what's going on here, right? It's almost entirely about the quality of experience rather than yeah. any sort of like objective measure or whatever. Um, and interesting that it's a pretty, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong about this, but it seems like a pretty, like relatively new and kind of Western idea, right? Well, 
uh, what do you mean like relatively new? You because because they do because they do talk about uh, like Sophocles, the tragedian, right? Who kind of mentions this idea, and then Ecclesiastes, which is from the BCE motherfuckers if that's a callback <laughs> to my last week's shitty minute but um yeah that's before common era i mean we don't know exactly when it was written but let's assume that it's written relatively early so we're talking sixth fifth century something like that bce so um so and there's a bit in there where uh the writer of the uh of the lament is basically saying it, he's like envious of people who had never been born so new in western in what sense yeah, so I should clarify. Obviously, the idea that there's more harm than benefit in life is not new. Like that's Ecclesiastes. You go back to like Buddha. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's like as universal as you know human life has been. Um, and certainly for certain people, that's going to be true, right? I'm thinking more of the the fact that that claim gives import towards um, thinking life is 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 not worthwhile in some sense. Um, at least in the, I guess I'm, I'm pointing it more towards like this utilitarian calculus, oh, yeah. right? Of thinking if it's the case that there is more harm than benefit in terms of the qualities of experience, um, then life is not worthwhile for that reason, right? Certainly you can go back to like Buddhism um, as being like an escape from suffering, as an escape from, you know, the perils of wanting, um, being somewhat similar in terms of the diagnosis, Right. Um, and there's certainly like an escape from that. That's important, right? To get away from the harm, um, that comes through life, but it's, it's sort of an escape to something, right? Like, you know, yeah. to some sort of enlightenment. Um, whereas here you have the notion of just literally just escape from into nothing is better. And I think that's important, right? Because it's saying no experience is better than this experience. Yeah. So this is, I'm, I'm really glad you brought this up. So, cause I, I, I wrote down a few points and I, and I was kind of analogously thinking about the position of antinatalism being related to an idea of negative freedom that with that that seems to discard any possibility of a positive freedom. So for Buddhism, you have the thing from which we must escape, which is suffering, but there's always a cure, right? Uh, same with Christianity, same with most religious prescriptions, because they have some metaphysics of the soul, or they have some metaphysics of the divine, or the afterlife, or the like, the kind of value of uh, ultimate reality, or something like that. But antinatalism discards that metaphysical, um, that metaphysical principle of the, like the inherent value of the self, right? And that's one of the things that it kind of says is no, that it's actually that there is no inherent value in life. There is no inherent goodness to life itself. Whereas, you know, with Christianity, you have the Imago Dei. Um, with Buddhism, you've got kind of like the ultimate connection of one. Hinduism, you've got Brahman Atman, you know, kind of things like that, right? So those things are valuable in that life is either an expression of the divine or is somehow like, um, a creation of the divine or some sort of participatory uh, expression or uh, emanation of the divine, something along those lines. Whereas this requires, I think, a materialist metaphysics that does away with all of that. But then simultaneously, what that leaves it with is that it leaves it with a purely negative orientation. And so I was right, I wrote down in my notes, I said that it requires life to be established from which it can distance itself. So it's kind of like uh, a negative diremption 
So it's not an a priori or a foundational notion, I said, but it seems to be a reactive, negative, and fundamentally dependent position. And I think there's like an irony in this because it requires life and sapience. So there's maybe even an anthropocentrism here, but it requires that to be able to think of life's own extinction. So there is kind of like a dialectical or like a some sort of like negative duality, like a polarity, negative polarities that is required here. So it can't be an a priori position. It has to be a reactive position. No? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, it doesn't have sort of a notion of the good that it strives towards. Um, exactly. By which it defines what's bad. It just takes a thing as brute, as like a brute fact being bad and then says the answer is to stop that thing, right? So I guess the idea here for me is how is the antinatalist defining harm? What is yeah. harm? It's taken as a brute fact. So it's almost like it's a simple notion, right? It can't be defined, it seems like. That's right. It's just inherently bad, and we just know that it is. And that's the end of the story. Like, it's the color yellow. Like, how do you define yellow? Well, you don't. It's a, it's a conceptual, like, simple, right? Um, so harm seems to be treated as being kind of like that. Now, correct us if we're wrong, audience. If you've read Benatar or any other antinatalist, they define harm as more than just, like, the bad quality of experience. Let us know. But it seems to me that's the case. And if that's the case, that seems empty to me. Harm doesn't seem to be um, this empty notion. Uh, maybe bad is, but harm isn't. Harm seems to me as uh, is a negative notion, which means preventing something good. Like that seems mm. to be what harm is. And you have to define harm as the prevention, like the active prevention of something good from occurring. The problem then is if you define harm that way, well, then it's not so clear um, how you fit this picture about sort of non-identity, like non-existence as being something good. Um, since it's that, I mean, how do you define non-existence as being something good other than the fact that it's just less harm? Quanti- yeah, like the supposed alleviation of, right. Yeah, which then, of course, you, you define harm as being the prevention of something good. So it doesn't seem like non-existence is going to be that good thing unless you have some like metaphysical explanation for why non-existence is like enlightenment or something. Is this um, kind of like an inversion of Augustine's theory of evil? As a privation argument? Yeah. So good is privation? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not explicit, though, because that seems incoherent. But that may be like where you have to go to make sense of it. That that's seems so like a reductio at that point, right? Cause, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's yeah. probably right. Um, whereas these other, you know, the classic religions and different philosophical systems... Um, tend to have a notion of good first and harm is defined as somewhere along the lines of prevention of that good thing. And so you can see, it gives you like a practical syllogism what to do, right? To stop the harm, to get to the good again. Whereas this has really no notion of the good. It only has harm. Um, And so escaping the harm is really the point. And that might lead you towards, you know, the solution being non-existence. I think think it's ultimately incoherent though, without that notion of, of good by which harm can be derivatively defined. Yeah, that's ex- it, that's one of the notes that I wrote. I said, it assumes that suffering is bad, which requires a theory of the good or of badness, which it seems to merely just reduce to like death or harm as being a bad, but is never really defended. And that needs to be defended. And then actually, this is what I said is, because they speak a lot about death as being a bad, I, uh, I said, I actually think that there's something ontologically incoherent with antinatalism as well. Um, And now I don't, for people listening, stick with us here, because I'm not just going to shit on it as well. I do think there's actually a positive value to it as well that I'll get to in a minute. But 
Um, I said, I do think it seems ontologically inho- incoherent because it stops at sentient life. And so I would argue uh, that it misunderstands how sentience is interconnected with the non-sentient or even like, let's say, the non-sapient. So life is actually a result of death because death is a relative term that we humans, again, think anthropocentrism here, use to describe a phase shift. So like when a leaf dies, the totality that was the leaf in the abstract as an identity, which itself is an abstract entity, it's a construct, it changes phases. But the process of the leaf's phasing was always quote-unquote dying, right? But it's dying, that is the transformation of its identity from every instant to the next, is also a becoming. And so this is the paradox that Deleuze talks about in Logic of Sense when he talks about Alice, who is both getting bigger and smaller simultaneously, right? That, that in every, like, if we're going to assume, and I'm going to assume this, um, a sort of like process, philosophical understanding of becoming, that things are kind of like contingent in their becoming, um, then that means that any moment, let's say, of an identity is just a snapshot of what is otherwise a process of decay. But in that process of decay, you also have a different type of becoming. You have a becoming into something else. And um, what will actually be my sticky leaves, kind of foreshadowing here, but I, I really want to talk about this because I think it actually fits really well in Walt Whitman, who says something really beautiful in his song of a song of myself. He talks about death, and uh, I'm going to probably read more of this later, but he says, as to you, life, I reckon that you are the leavings of many deaths. So he's speaking to life here, and he's saying that life is the leavings of many deaths. And no doubt I have died myself 10,000 times before. So there's a sense in which life is itself the sort of effect of the accumulation of many deaths beforehand, right? Um, in this interconnected understanding of a material universe. And then this is what I think is really lovely. He talks about death here. He says, I bequeath myself to the dirt to grow from the grass I love. If you want me again, look for me under your boot soles, right? Um talking about how he's kind of giving himself over at some point to the grass, which becomes like the fiber that comes into our bloodstreams and stuff like that. So there's a sense in which I think that there's also like an ontological misunderstanding in antinatalism that seems to kind of presume um, a kind of anthropocentric view of the world, but also it seems to kind of work within like firm senses of identities, that like a leaf is a leaf, and if a leaf dies, that's a bad thing, rather than recognizing that it's actually this kind of like larger processual chain of like chloroform and like networks kind of moving down to these various chemical factors that derive from the solar energy and that are attached to the bark in the tree that themselves are part of a causal chain of the root system that is part of like the sediment that itself is like non-sentient. So I feel like it kind of privileges sapience while using the word sentience in order to create a kind of anthropomorphic critique of something um, based on a kind of relative position within a contingent historical frame. And so I think it's ontologically incoherent because of that. Does that make sense? Wait, well, here's the thing, dude. You can be a part of a larger process um, and that process still be bad. Like if we found out that, unbeknownst to us, uh, the Earth was actually just an incubator for uh, humans to eventually grow and become food for aliens who just really love the large brains of mammals from Earth. <laughs> Um, like we could find that out and be like, well, you know what? It's just part of the, the, the larger process of decay and feeding the aliens, our brains. What are you going to do about it? Like that could still be bad. Right. And especially it's a conceptual truth that it's bad. If the only things that are bad are the bad qualities of experience. Right. 
Right. That's but it's what, bad. But it's bad for us. So it's a phenomenological. Yeah, descriptor. but it's a con- it's conceptual truth at that point. If badness is only about the qualities of experience, and only things that have experiences that are sentient um, yeah. are going to have experienced badness, right? This is analytic truth. So yeah, I think you're right that there's a problem there, but I don't think that simply that just pointing out the idea that there's a larger process here and that we're viewing it um, anthropocentrically is gonna alleviate the problem because i mean it's it's just i think it's admitting that it's anthropocentric in terms of favoring experience as the location of goodness and badness and then also the fact that um processes larger processes of which we are a part can be bad for us right even if they're not bad in general they can be bad for us things that experience um and you still might want to might think yourself rational to check out of that right Okay, but here's the thing. So if it's bad for us and you want to check out of it, what I don't think is the appropriate logical step is to then become the defeatist and say, therefore, extinction is the answer. That's yeah, where I that think... That part seems incoherent, yeah. Right. That's where there's the problem. It's almost like uh, the, the the problem of the gap between like ontology and politics here. It's like there's a problem here between like their assessment of... They're like, their description might be right, but their normative frame is wrong. Yeah, I think that's, I think their description at least is partially right. Cause I don't think that partially they, right. Yeah, partially right. The goodness and badness is too restrictive. It's just not the case yeah. that we think only experiences are good or bad. I don't think we do. I think all the time we go through bad experiences with no hope of those bringing about good experiences or even with little hope of them bringing about good experiences, but we think it worthwhile. Like yeah. even here, it basically says, um, I think somewhere in the article, reproduction is not good for the thing that reproduces in general of, for all animals and non-animals, right? Reproduction is generally not good for that being. It's good for the species and for the being who's... Well, not good out, for that maybe. species in what way? No, it is good for the species. I'm sorry, or, not not good for that entity in what way? Just because it somehow like, stops of, its conatus? But why uh, in is terms that a of the good qualities thing? of experience? If you're going to define it in terms of the qualities of experience, it's not good to reproduce generally. It brings about more harm than benefit on a whole. That's probably true. Even if you factor in like the happiness that a human being, for instance, might have from having children or whatever. It, generally, I think actually we've proven that it's not the case that you get more happy experiences than than um, unhappy experiences from having children. People well, who have children also, are generally happier, but that doesn't what? mean that <laughs> we shouldn't have children, yeah. right? No one thinks that. Yeah, and it's also a signal that your time is coming to an end and that the new generation is going to take over. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a whole lot of bad stuff. Um, but yeah. the, basically, what I think antinatalists have to say is given their definition of, of badness as being just a quality of experience and applying to nothing else, predicating nothing else but the qualities of experience, you basically have to say anyone who has a child is being irrational. Um not in terms of not just the other being bad. That's the thing that antenatal say is that you're wrong to have a child, at least the, the, the more radical ones, right? Right. That um, it's like actually a moral wrong, right? Yeah. But no, you actually have to say more than that. You have to say that they're irrational for irrational. doing that. Yeah. Um, I think that's just, that, that should show you that you're not, your methodology is wrong, right? Individuals don't think that badness is only about the qualities of experience. We've talked about this a lot in the podcast. This is kind of like my hobby horse. Pain is not always bad. Yeah. Pain, this was your uh, your sticky yeah. leaves a few weeks ago. Yeah, I think it's a central point that I think people miss a lot and sort of the most fundamental argument I think against like a more um like a hedonic utilitarianism type ethic is that 
pain sometimes is good if we can if we fit pain as a necessary condition towards something good, right? Um, then it itself can be a good thing, right? When you go to the doctor to get a shot, it's painful, but that's not necessary towards the shot being effective, right? It's just an unfortunate consequence of the way that you know nerve cells work when it comes to needles. But sometimes pain is good. Sometimes pain sort of makes the, the process of learning something or gaining some new skill or accomplishing something mean more to us and more meaningful. And if you took the pain out, it wouldn't be as good. So it's a kind of a, what we normally would think of as a, as a, a simply negative quality of experience. It doesn't have to be in every single circumstance. And I think that clues us into the fact that we don't define the value of certain things purely based or entirely and exhaustively based upon the pure qualities of the experience being painful or pleasurable. Here's, here's, I'm just kind of trying to work through this idea right now. I feel like, so we've, we've used the word that this is kind of like a phenomenological position based on the qualities of experience. It seems to be a very sort of like psychologistic, which also fits into like the anthropomorphic idea, but it's a very psychologistic view because this is what I wonder, like, why stop at sentience as being the, um, the determining factor that dictates, you know, let's say uh, the experience, uh, the, the variations of experience of, uh, or the variations of qualitative experience, right? Like why would a rock being smashed apart not qualify for the antinatalist perspective? Now, obviously it's in the name antinatalist. So there's the presumption that, that a rock um, is not alive. That is not an expression of life. Um, my panpsychist hat on, uh, doesn't like that idea. But even beyond that, is there not like a sort of like metaphysical front loading here that presumes too much? And maybe it's because it resists the metaphysics of like spirituality or the metaphysics of um, like the divine or the metaphysics of like the intrinsic worth of the human soul or something along those lines. And because it rejects all of those things, which I'm not entirely opposed to, but because it rejects them kind of just outright and maybe a bit simply, that it's left then with a kind of uh, solipsism almost. And I know that it then tries to then make this into a larger ethical and social prescription, but it seems to be that it only can do that from like by turning within to the self and then projecting outwards. And so it seems to be a sort like trapped within like this like post-Cartesian selfishness and that it can't get out of that. And so it can't actually think about, it can't actually think outside of itself. It can't actually think ontologically. It can't think in a networked sense. It can't truly think environmentally because it's still only trapped within like the, the conditions of the turn to the self. Does this yeah, make sense? I, th I think you're right, dude. And I think the ultimate key that this is true is that antinatalists tend to care that other people agree or that other people <laughs> understand them, right? They think that antinatalism is a normative position that should be held, uh -huh. right? Which, why would you care about that? Why would you even care about anything other than your own qualities of experience if that's the only marker of what's good and bad, right? Why yeah. be a hedonic utilitarian and not just a pure hedonist? If unless you cared and thought it important and good that there be good things in the world, or that there be fewer bad things, even outside of yourself. So I think even the antinatalists' desire to evangelize, in some sense, to proselytize, clues us into the fact that 
no, you care about things more than just the quality of experience. Like you might care about the way that nature is, even non-sentient nature exists, right? And think sort of the, the vegan version of this really um, gives way to this fact, right? That it's important and good that the world be a certain way. And mm. that's where I think, again, the conceptual incoherence starts to creep in, right? We actually do care about these normative um, issues and, and just issues generally bigger than our own individual frame of experience, right? Mm. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think rocks experience. Uh, I do have some pan proto psychist tendencies, yeah. uh, maybe a little bit weaker than yours. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that there's definitely something to the degree of the, the privileging here of, of sentience I think is acceptable in one sense because it's just a conceptual truth that if you define um, badness or harm as like a bad quality of experience, then only things that experience can have badness, right? Or or be harmed. Um, But then, yeah, that that clues you into the idea of the privileging of of sentience in this way might be the issue um, with some respect. And yeah, the fact that you you care about nature should clue you into that. Well, maybe more than experience matters. Yeah, and so this is where I think it'd be really interesting to, if they really want to go and be radically consistent, like they should just read Ray Brassier's Nihil Unbound and go fucking full steam extinction. <laughs> you could do that, yeah. <laughs> like to me, um, oh God, what's his name from True Detective? Matthew McConaughey's character. Yeah, uh, I forget his name, yeah. That fucker, like like he he's an antinatalist for sure. He talks about how humanity is a tragic misstep and whatnot and... But um, the writer of the show actually read a lot of Brassier prior to crafting that character. So, um, but yeah, so if people are interested, Ray Brassier wrote a book called Neil Unbound in which he is basically, he says that nihilism is not an existential quandary, but a speculative opportunity. And he wants to push nihilism to its ultimate conclusion. So like he takes it as this like speculative moment to kind of like revel in the inevitable heat death of the universe as basically saying that there's literally no fucking meaning whatsoever. Like that's the way to go. Like make it a whole ontological and speculative position where it's just everything is decomposing and let's just like revel in that or not not even revel in it because that implies too much joy in it but use it as a speculative opportunity you know yeah Uh, and i know that um you know who thomas legati is he wrote the conspiracy against the human race uh yeah 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 i do he's got that kind of like full-on extinction um i forget the name of like the movement or whatever that he's supposedly founded but um yeah true detective thing was kind of based on that idea but even that, dude, doesn't it seem, it's not logically incoherent, but there's some kind of practical incoherence to me, it seems like, in that, why would, what's the point of writing a book about it? What's the point in preaching about it? Like Weston Cole in True Detective, Matthew McConaughey's character, he talks ceaselessly about <laughs> it, right? And it's not just because yeah. like he, he finds himself like unable to it's not like he's driven purely by instinct to do it or driven purely by like insanity to do it. Right. He's, he's practically doing it. Like he's deciding to do it. So there has to be some sense in which he sees it as important or accomplishing some goal he sets for himself to talk about this stuff. So that very idea seems to me that, well, then you value things. Like if you, if you can act, then you value things. I seem that seems to me to be also um, analytically true. So, uh, to me, that seems like a clue that, you know what, there's more going on here in terms of what's valued than, um, than is being led on because this person is acting 
Yeah, it's almost it's almost like analogously to what we were talking about with the Joker. You know how Nolan's Joker is perceived by Alfred to be someone who just wants to watch the world burn. And then Joker himself says like, oh, I don't have plans. But you're kind of like, well, one, Alfred misunderstands him. That's because Christopher Nolan, even if that's supposed to be the narrator voice, Christopher Nolan's actually kind of a conservative. And so, of course, he's going to say, right? And so, of course, he's going to say that. And because he's basically just a liberal. And I don't mean that in a shitty way. I'm not trying to shit on him, but he kind of is, right? He believes in the human spirit, the Dunkirk spirit. Just see the movie Dunkirk and you kind of get this interstellar, you know, love and stuff like that, all those themes. Um, And then, of course, you're like, well, Joker's lying. (laughs) He He clearly is. He's clearly (laughs) lying. So there's something similar here. Like to truly be a consistent nihilist is very difficult, right? Um, And I was talking about this again with Darius. I was talking about Nietzsche. You know, Nietzsche tries to like put on this brave face like, oh, you know, we're just like uh, ships without a mooring lost at sea without a compass and we can just kind of like row harder and overcome the the stormy seas. No, dude, you're full of shit, man. Like you're this angry, reactive. You got rejected by a couple of different women a few different times. That's probably why you hate women. You're this vagabond (laughs) who's running around teaching philology and shit like that. Like you're like uh, maybe you're doing like the fake it till you make it kind of thing. It's like a performance. It's a performative wishful thinking almost and i'm not trying to just completely discredit nietzsche i like a lot of nietzsche's work but it does seem very difficult to consistently authentically and sincerely live that kind of nihilism so maybe i'm just constitutively too much of a vitalist um to fully understand comprehend it maybe i can apprehend it but i can't comprehend it but it does seem just very difficult to actually live consistently yeah, I think if you're if you're going to take nihilism, like a full blown nihilism, as being the claim that there are there's no value in the world whatsoever, um, that's practically incoherent in the sense that you can't act from that. Literally, if you act, then you, in some sense, are acting against that idea. And maybe you can hold that and be like, yeah, but instinctually, I'm still compelled to eat, right? Uh, maybe, but I don't know that anybody actually. Uh, well, then uh, don't form any true. memories about how tasty that pie was, motherfucker, because <laughs> as soon as you have a memory, then that's going to condition the next time you think about a pie. So I think we're betrayed in by memory and by sensation and by linguistics. More prisons, and, right? That's prisons it, man. Prisons of false value. <laughs> that's it, but dude. No, but, you know, I think we're, we're, we're shitting pretty hard on this stuff, and I think appropriately in some respect. But there's something I think that's really good about nihilism, even if it doesn't recognize it, and that it's it's critical, right? nihilism yeah. and especially like coming from you know like the Nietzschean realm it's it's really good in pointing out where the false value is yeah. I think it's it's wrong if it goes so far as to say that there is no value all value is false value um, but it's really good at pointing out where the lie about value actually is right so that's really helpful I think as a, as a critical device um, and of course antinatalism is not nihilistic um, in fact it's it's very much not nihilistic and it, it sort of values or at least it points out some disvalue as being like harm is disvaluable, right? Uh, I think there's a problem in terms of not defining that disvalue in terms of value, right? Mm. Um, that's, I think, a, a bit of a logical incoherence that exists there. But it's also good at pointing out that, you know, it may empirically be true that there's more harm than benefit. You know, and I, I think I said earlier on accident that we remember harms more than benefits. Actually, I mean the opposite. We remember benefits more often but that might be a lie about memory right mm. that might be the fact that we actually do have more harm than benefit in life but we remember the benefits disproportionately to the harms 
And so we convince ourselves it's not the case, that there's more harm than benefit. Um, so it may very well be true that there's more harm than benefit to life. And that's probably an important thing to think about, like the bias that our memory has towards things like that. That's a really important critical notion, I think. Um, and it also, I think, gives lie to the fact that uh, if, if you're going to sort of base the value of life on the quantity of, of positive, pleasurable experiences, that's not going to work out so well for you, <laughs> right? That kind mm. of hedonistic utilitarianism, um, yeah. antinatalism is like the, it's like the bizarro version of it, like the, like the, it's the, like the Wario or the Waluigi. <laughs> it's utilitarianism's Mario, right? Um, and so I think that's important to point out that, look, if you're going to follow that, that structure, um, then it's not going to work out so well. You're going to lead to this kind of almost absurdist conclusion. Um, so that's important too, I think. There's, an, there's some important respects in which I think antinatalism and, and also nihilism um, as kind of a cousin are effective uh, counters towards these more popular positions which they oppose. Hmm. You agree with that? Yeah. I wrote down the last thing that I wrote is I said, I think it's valuable as a theoretical heuristic mm, yeah. and I think it can lead uh, lead us to be um, to employ it as a a valuable thought experiment. Like you could say, well, what if you know human beings stopped procreating, or what if um, you know uh, I don't know a third of the fucking Thanos snaps his finger, and what is it <laughs> half half all creatures? Is that what it is, or a third, or whatever the fuck it was, are just destroyed in an instant, right? Like. And in this sense, like, Avengers is kind of an interesting anti-natalist thought experiment. Like, you get to see that, right? Um, of course, like you've talked about, it doesn't really, we don't really get his reasons as to why, but, um, you know, just overcrowding and competition and conflict and stuff like that. But Where's the really data? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so I do think that there is something like you just said. It is valuable because it does show us those points of tension in a world that just assumes certain values. Like we just assume maybe that procreation is good, that life is good, that having babies is good, that uh, that you are a son of God, that you have the Imago Dei in you or something like that. And this kind of comes along as like, hold on a second, like let's pause. And it's a radical split from that. I used the word deremption earlier. And I think that's a really interesting way of talking about this fracturing between the two. And I like the word deremption because one, I, I feel like it's actually a violent word. Like, because it's got all of those like stops in it, like duh remp shun you know it's and it like feels violent when i say it like deremption be a rad metal band name but um uh but it That's does like some it just, literally a logocentric thinking dude i know i sometimes it comes out you know <laughs> um but uh but i i think it, it it does kind of articulate that well because it causes us to pause in our everyday and it pauses that lived experience to then use more phenomenological language and then we can engage in an epoch a, like a bracketing a suspension of our presuppositions and we can use this as a sort of like shock to thought and in that sense i do find it valuable because i do think it's interesting to consider precisely because of the reasons you said because it does um, illuminate some of the contradictions. So one of the ways in which I think it's really actually really valuable is as a as a um, contingent historical position. So in the conditions of late capitalism, in a world that seems to be rapidly producing subjects that are more and more conditioned by 
the logic of financialization, neoliberalism, or you if you are in the periphery, a member of the excluded, right? Um, the lumpen proletariat. If the world continues along this path, then it does seem quite interesting that as an historical and contingent fact that the capitalist context is creating a very um, inhospitable environment. And so then I think we need to take responsibility for the perspectives or viewpoints that we have on society and on life. Like, are we going to continue to just um, reproduce a system that is causing suffering, psychological suffering and physical and literal material suffering around the world, et cetera, et cetera? Um, or is this somehow, can we like take this like antinatalist position as kind of like a symptom of people who are extremely dissatisfied of this contingent historical set of conditions and say, therefore, rather than kind of resigning ourselves to a defeatist fate, let's proactively fight against it and create a better world so that we can try to alleviate suffering in other ways rather than the extinction route. Yeah, I think that you're the metaphor you use of shock to thought is it's totally perfect, dude, because, you know, all of our instinctual biases go against the anti-natalist position, right? And I think anyone who first hears about it and hears the claim that you know, giving birth is, is sort of wrong or bad <laughs> for various reasons immediately kind of laughs, right? Because it just seems absurd. I um, picture, you know, those paintings or those pictures of like babies in sunflower masks or the hats that they have. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, but babies. There's a <laughs> well, the babies aren't bad, right? They themselves aren't bad, but yeah. giving birth to them is. Um, so... And it's absurd because all of our instinctual biases go against it, right? It's, 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 it's for procreation. It's for abundance of life. It's for you know, all these things. But then we need to be shocked away from those biases, right? Like we need to actually think about why those things are valuable, if they indeed are, and for what reason. Um, because uh, having an instinctual bias towards a thing is not a good reason for thinking something is valuable, right? Um, so... Yeah, I think for that, for that reason, antinatalism plays an important role in sort of shocking us to thought. Because if you come across an antinatalist position, all of a sudden now you think about it. Like, well, why do I think that this is wrong? Why do I think that giving that having um, children and, and procreation and abundance of life is good? Um, and you kind of have to justify it to yourself. Or you could just, I guess, laugh it off and say those people are like faking it or something. Uh, or they're just trying to get attention or they're just goths or whatever. Um, but eventually... <laughs> Like that has to stick with you at some point. Like you have to think about now. Some, some people seriously believe this and are acting accordingly. Um, what does that mean, right? And what, what what does that mean for for how I think? Um, so yeah, I think in that respect, yeah, it actually is a really helpful heuristic, um, and definitely is is at least thinking more consistently. I think than like a than like a just naive um, version of like you know we should procreate just because like it's, it's, our, it's our natural function or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't talk at all really about maybe the opposite of antinatalism, which is like natality. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, um, that can come in all different forms. You know, obviously again, I'm reading through the Bible and one of the things that I think you find in um, particularly, let's say I'm, I'm in, in the Old Testament right now, but I think you'll also see this reiterated in the New Testament, is some of the prohibitions against sexual activities. No, I'm going to say all of the prohibitions against certain sexual activities are tied to a type of natalism that is rooted in 
um, you know, the covenant theology that is established, but really, you know, the command to be fruitful and multiply and to kind of like reproduce and create children of Israel who would be sons of Yahweh, um, that that's extremely important. And that's why you get prohibitions against fucking angels, for example, in the book of Jude in the New Testament, or like uh, the Nephilim or um, Sodom and Gomorrah story. Like these are stories that they contest the reason that like Sodom is destroyed because they have great wealth and they do not share with their neighbors, which is what it says in Ezekiel sixteen forty nine. But, but also like one of the issues of the dudes trying to bang down the door and bang the angels is that human and angel copulation isn't good for the program of the natalist policy of the theo- theopolitical program of Israel, right? So there's a natalism in don't forget about Onan, dude. Yeah, oh yeah, fucking Onan is fucking killed <laughs> because he jizzes on the floor rather than coming into his <laughs> his sister-in-law. I'm just going to be real, guys. This wasting is what they don't teach man. you. This is what they don't teach you in Sunday school, man. He's wasting his resources. When was the last time you were in Sunday school and they're like, "We're going to teach you about Onan today who was murdered for spilling his seed on the floor cuz he pulled out." But but that's true. That's he is. He's fucking killed because he doesn't engage in the natalist program that is prescribed by the Levitical priesthood. So there is a a natalism in the religious community, but I also think that there's like a subtle natalism that you just get from people that are like, oh, but like having a child is life-affirming and, you know, it changes your life and stuff like that. And I have met friends who have said that, like anecdotal evidence up to my eyeballs that, that there is something that is just like a good about reproducing because it is this miracle or whatever. I don't know. So that's like a kind of more subtle form. But there is, there are variations of the opposite of this, which are like natalism that we could consider too. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know how far we're going to go down this road, but there's a whole lot here. Like the natalism you're talking about, the biblical kind is obviously coming from like a divine command theory, right? Which is, it's right because God commands it to be so. Now, I don't think most people think that today, right? Like they don't say, I want to have children or I think we should have children because God commands it. So it's more like, well, no, I think it'll be good. Maybe they terms it in term, maybe they term it as uh, good for them, right? Like I think it will be, I want to do this because I will find it to be good for me. Or maybe it's because I, I, you know, they think it'll be good for the children. Like it's better that they exist than not exist or something like that. Um, or maybe good for the world. Right. But then you have to actually fill out that claim, right? Because you don't have to fill out the divine, divine command claim. Like God commands it to be good, so I do it. Right? That's kind of how it works. Um, but if you're going to claim that it's good for some other reason, uh, some like naturalistic reason, maybe or otherwise, you got to fill out that claim, right? And it's kind of um, begging for more explanation. So there can be all different kinds of like natalism. Yeah, a Darwinian uh, and, natalism, right? Yeah, and many of those commit some sort of like naturalistic type fallacy, right? Where totally abundance is good because of like. Because it is abundant, because it's more of nature. It's more stuff. Because this is what this is what nature does, therefore we should do more of it. It's like, yeah, but nature also eats babies and fucking ducks rape each other and shit like that. Like, yeah. come on. Again, like if we found out that our brains were food for aliens, like does that mean that it's good? <laughs> right. Of course the people at the top of the food chain think that nature is inherently good, right? In some, in some respect. <laughs> That's a very good point. Yeah, it works out well for us, therefore. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that the aliens who eat our brains are like, yeah, this seems good, right? That's right. Teleology, man. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting to think about. I just, I also think that similar to the Schopenhauer essay, just constitutionally, I am like, 
as opposed mm. as possible to this. <laughs> Pretty much, man. Pretty much. But that doesn't mean that, again, like I don't find some value in it. Like I really do find it interesting to think about because it is shocking to me and it is provocative um, in a good sense, like as in it's provoking thought. And so I do find it interesting. I just think that ultimately I, I kind of just come down on a completely different viewpoint. Maybe it's the difference between like an optimist and a pessimist. And I just, you know, I am inclined towards problem solving. Yeah, I think it's more than just that, though. Like, um, I think we've detailed out some conceptual and and uh, and otherwise problems with um, the general idea behind the view, if not like really digging deep into the arguments. Yeah. But then I think yeah, it's really important to point out that you know a lot of people I think read about antinatalism or hear about it and just dismiss it as sort of like some sort of false signaling, right? Like no one like you know you don't actually think this is true or whatever. Like you're just trying to get attention or be different or whatever. Or be like dissenting, and that's you know that may be true sometimes, but I don't think it is. I think it's coming from a very real place, which is this idea that you know what people tend to assume that life has more you know beneficial experiences than harmful ones, and that may not be true, and we should take that seriously. And I think that by itself is is something to consider, and we should try to include that in our thought, and that should really should shock us, uh, should shock mm-hmm. us, excuse me, to to thinking about how we think about value in life and what it has to do with experience and what role that plays. And, um, so yeah, I think it's good for those reasons um, to be shocked out of that kind of complacent thought about life just automatically being good without any um, sort of reason for that. Mm. Yeah, I agree. All right, well, that was fun. Yeah, dude, I enjoy that kind of stuff. Yeah, just riffing. That's like the old podcast days. That's it, man. Let's riff away. <laughs> All right, so now we got to do the next segment of the podcast, everyone's favorites, where we actually do talk about there being positive value in life, at least somewhere, yeah. even if it's the sticky leaves in the ground. Yeah. So for the sticky leaves segments, one of us talks about whatever it is that's giving us meaning in a potentially meaningless universe. It's possible that Anthony Adels are right about that. Hmm. So Austin, what's doing it for you? So I just finished reading Walt Whitman's Song of Myself. Um, it was first written in 1856, and then it's like redrafted a couple times and retitled in 1881, I think, is what it is. It's called Song of Myself. Its original version is called A Poem of Walt Whitman, an American. But I just finished this, and it took me about a month, actually, to work through the poem. It is. How long is it? 52 stanzas. So in my book here, it starts on page 13 and it ends on page 77. So it's a pretty long poem, but I took my time. I would read maybe a, you know, a couple stanzas a day. Some of them are shorter than others. But it's it's pretty dense and it's pretty rich. And this is my first experience properly reading Whitman. Like I think people are very familiar with the line do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. multitudes yeah. yeah, I think everybody knows that. Even if it's just that I contain multitudes or do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. Whatever. Like, People are familiar with excerpts from Song of Myself, but this was the first time that I've actually really sat down and read it, and I read it over a long period of time, and I, it was nothing short of a type of spiritual experience or religious experience, especially the final couple pages that um, 
kind of almost brought tears to my eyes and and gave me the hmms where I just have to stop and go, huh. <laughs> you know what I mean? I like where that. Just, yeah, you just got to stop and go, hmm. Um, well, I'm sitting at my cafe having like my my morning green juice or whatever. But I just wanted to read a couple of lines that I have highlighted throughout that I think are amazing. It's, I think it's it's a poem that you you should read from beginning to end because there's so much going on. But it's also one of those poems that I think that you can kind of extract stuff from and still get a lot from. I wrote a little blog on our website, if people want to read it, that is kind of critical of Whitman. And, and what I said was is that Whitman, he kind of espouses a vitalism, not kind of. He espouses a vitalism. He is a philosopher of eminence, a philosopher of sensuation or of, of sensuousness. Um, and uh, I was going to say sensation and sensuousness, sensuation, I guess we'll call it. Um, <laughs> but he's a, a sensuous philosopher. You know, he talks a lot about the loins and he talks about like the philosophy of or like the eminence of touch, the power of touch. And um, he talks a lot about God, but it's a very sort of pantheistic understanding of God. He's, I guess, very influenced by the transcendental philosophy of Emerson. But um what I wrote in my little blog post is that I kind of feel that it's both tragic and hopeful, this poem, because it's hopeful in the sense that he talks about how he can just enjoy the hedonic pleasures. He can just enjoy the sensational pleasures. He can just enjoy the touch and the taste and the sight and the smell. And he can enjoy the fact that, he, like, the singular universal, that he is um, a singularity that is composed of the multitude of the universe and simultaneously that he can look at a blade of grass and think the same thing and you know he talks about how he can feel the lashes of the slave or feel the fear of the sailor in the tempest or uh, understand the piety of the quakeress that is praying and stuff like that and there's this interconnectedness that he's creating that i think is really beautiful but at the same time he also kind of leaves us with maybe a kind of nihilism almost, or he leaves us maybe not with a nihilism, because no, it's not nihilistic. What he leaves us with, I think, is um, a, a type of a, a, a flux without any type of grounding. And this is just one of those tensions that I'm always kind of working through where I'm very attracted to like the philosophies of imminence, but at the same time, I, I bemoan, let's say, the loss of like a metaphysical underpinning, right? And so reading Whitman, he doesn't, he doesn't have that second step. It's just pure like exuberance at imminence. And there's something beautiful and seductive about it, but at the same time, I kind of also find it a little bit tragic and just something that is difficult for me to work through. But um, some of the lines that I think are really beautiful in this that speak to that that beautiful exuberance are kind of stuff like this. Um, so he starts off early. He says, I have heard what the talkers were talking, the talk of the beginning and the end, but I do not talk of the beginning or the end. There was never any more inception than there is now, nor any more youth or age than there is now, and will never be any more perfection than there is now, nor any more heaven or hell than there is now. Urge and urge and urge, always the procreant urge of the world. I just, I, I fucking love that. Matter of fact, I'm going to get <laughs> urge and urge and urge tattooed on my body. Because um, <laughs> I, right, right, at my, right above like my pelvic area too, because that's fucking the perfect location for it, isn't it? <laughs> um, right here, the smallest sprout shows that there really is no death 
and if ever there was, it led forward life, and does not wait at the end to arrest it, and ceased the moment life appeared. All goes onward and outward, and nothing collapses, and to die is different from what anyone supposed, and luckier. This is just so antinatalist, brother. Like, it's actually <laughs> this is so, perfect. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's it's kind of like perfect timing there. Um, I didn't plan this out very well because I'm so I'm just kind of like flipping through stuff right here. But here's another one. I exist as I am. That is enough. If no other in the world be aware, I sit content. And if each and all be aware, I sit content. And then he says a couple lines later, my foothold is tenoned and mortised in granite. I laugh at what you call dissolution, and I know the amplitude of time. I am a poet of the body. I am the poet of the soul. And then he says, Dude, that pleasure- almost sounds like a drill tweet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the thing is, is, is he kind of, you know, there's, there's this like, you know, irregular form. There's not like a rhyme and a meter or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, it seems sometimes stream of consciousness, but it, uh, he wrote this over like decades, you know? The tweets, so, dude. Yeah, totally, man. <laughs> um, but I love this. The pleasures of heaven are with me and the pains of hell are with me. The first I graft an increase upon myself. The latter I translate into a new tongue. Um, some of it is so enigmatic and that's why you kind of, read and you pause it's like what does that mean that the pains of hell are what you translate into a new tongue and that the pleasures of heaven are what you graft and increase upon yourself i mean that one seems quite self-explanatory but there's something interesting you know i do not i do not decline to be the poet of wickedness also (laughs) you know (laughs) he's like a poet of goodness and a poet of wickedness um and then let me get to the end here because there's just so much stuff that i could keep reading but um he talks about how, like, the distant and dead resuscitate in me. They show as the dial or move as the hands of me, and I am the clock myself. I love this idea that the world, the multiplicity of the world, are kind of like the hands of the clock of himself, that they are part of him. And this is what he talks about later when he talks about, you know, that I contain multitudes. Um, he talks a lot about how he's not convinced by sermons or by theory, but it's just the immediate, the thing that everyone knows by the immediate sense experience, that that's what ultimately matters to him. And that's what the world hangs on, right? That the world doesn't hang on universal foundations, but that the world hangs on like those instantaneous, the the ubiquity of the instantaneous experience of the minute, right? Someone didn't like reading in their metaphysics class, apparently. (laughs) Um, Oh, what does he say? Uh, let me just kind of, kind of I'll, I'll skip to the end here because this is where I kind of thought it was amazing. Okay, so, um, so this is very Nietzschean right here. He says, "Oh, hold on, let me do I go back one page here? No, I'll, I'll, okay, right here. He says, so you're also going to ask me questions, and I hear you. I answer that I cannot answer. You must find out for yourself. Sit a while, wayfarer. Here are biscuits to eat, and here is milk to drink." But as soon as you sleep and renew yourself in sweet clothes, I kiss you with a goodbye kiss and open the gate for your egress hence. Long enough have you dreamed contemptible dreams. Now I wash the gum from your eyes. You must habit yourself to the dazzle of the light and of every moment of your life. Long have you timidly waited, holding a plank by the shore, 
Now I will you to be a bold swimmer, to jump off in the midst of the sea and rise again and nod to me and shout and laughingly dash with your hair. There's that that kind of Nietzschean joy and madness in being untethered, right? That I think Mm. is so beautiful there as well. But this is what I think is the most enigmatic and what I, I had like my religious experience over the last couple of days. He says, and I call to mankind, be not curious about God. For I who am curious about each am not curious about God. No array of terms can say how much I am at peace about God and about death. So I'm going to pause here. I found something super interesting. So don't be curious about God. And he says, I'm curious about each. I'm curious about the particular, the minute, the experience. Those things draw my attention. He talks about how he just like watches animals. And so he's very enthralled by the curiosities of the each and the particular and the unique of the material world. But he's not curious about God, right? Which is like the totality or the whole. And then here's what he says next. I hear and behold God in every object. Yet I understand God not in the least. So it seems almost paradox, like contradictory here. So he's not curious about God because he beholds God in every object. He's at peace about God, but he doesn't understand God in the least, right? And then he says, nor do I understand who there can be more wonderful than myself. And then the next line is, why should I wish to see God better than this day? I see something of God each hour of the 24 and each moment then. In the faces of men and women I see God, and in my own face in the glass. I find letters from God dropped in the street, and every one is signed by God's name. And I leave them where they are, for I know that others will punctually come forever and ever. And then he starts talking about death, and this was the line that I that I read earlier, and I love this because he says... Um, you know, that like death is a bitter hug of mortality, but it, it's it's idle to try to alarm me, but I'm not afraid of death. And then he goes and he says, and as to you corpse, I think you are good manure, but that does not offend me. I smell the white roses, sweet scented and growing. I reach to the leafy lips, the leafy lips. I reach to the polished breasts of melons. And as to you life, I reckon you are the leavings of many deaths. No doubt I have died myself 10,000 times before. I just, I, I think this is absolutely fantastic. And it kind of goes on from there. Um, talks about, you know, how it's not chaos or death, but it's form and union and plan. It is eternal life. It is happiness. There's that vitality there. Deleuze also talks about how imminence, pure imminence in his final essay, Imminence of Life, how it's utter beatitude. Um, and then, of course, it's do I contradict myself? Very well, then I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. So... I don't know, man. It was just, um, it was really lovely to to take my time through this long, you know, 60-page poem um, that I thought was just very rich and very inspiring in many ways. So just want to recommend that for people to check out and read because I think it's really, um, it's really quite, quite valuable. Yeah, that was great, dude. Um, did, did Deleuze ever write about Whitman? So here's the thing. So um, I don't know about Deleuze's engagement with Whitman, but I immediately actually found more resonance with Bergson. And the reason is because um, Deleuze's metaphysics requires a theory of death, the death of identity. 
which is his notion of the eternal return of difference, um, which is the sort of like perpetual destruction of identity. And it's a very sort of like pseudo-psychoanalytic term that he turns into like a metaphysical principle. But Bergson does not have that notion. Bergson is just a pure vitalist, right? The Elan Vital. Mm. So I was thinking actually the Whitman-Bergson connection would be much stronger. And so I literally just today found two journal articles that were like perfectly titled. And I read like the first couple pages so far. Um, one is called, I have them right here, Bergson's Intuition and Whitman's Song of Myself. And then the other one is called Poetic Philosophy, the Bergson-Whitman Connection. And I can't wait to continue to read read them because I definitely- I feel like you already wrote those, like a previous version of you. Yeah, I know. I know. It's funny because as I was reading it, I felt this vital, this vital impulse in Whitman, but it wasn't until I got to those final couple pages where I was like, oh my God, like this is straight up Bergson. And there's no evidence that Bergson read Whitman because Bergson was born in 1956, or I'm sorry, 1856. And then Whitman published this, or I'm sorry, maybe 1859. Um, and yeah, when does The Origin of Species come out? 59, right? Somewhere around so. 1860, yeah. Yeah, so that's when, that's when Bergson is born. So this poem already had like a first version out, but there's no indication in Bergson's work that he actually read Whitman. But nevertheless, there does seem to be at least a common, a common thread. Yeah. Um, do you generally fuck with the transcendentalists? You know what, ma'am? Um, I had a I had a moment where I I thought I would be interested in Emerson, and then I didn't pursue it much. It was when I was quite younger, though. What about you? Yeah, I mean, the, I was there were always like the like Steiner, the figures, like in yeah, yeah, and and like in high school that they were the only real um, kind of philosophically astute figures we we actually read since they were American, you know, and yeah, I guess at that time the only other. American figures you could have read were like the pragmatists and that just wasn't, wasn't there. <laughs> Even like Dewey, uh, I never had any um, interaction with in, in like later high school or whatever. For some reason, the transcendentalists were the one, I guess like in English classes, that's the one that you go to. Right. Mm, and yeah. I just never got it. It doesn't click with me. Um, just to the purely like um, effective level, it doesn't click with me. Um, which I think makes sense. Like it makes sense. I think that it clicks with you. Very much so yeah. at the effective level. And then that encourages you to explore it more at the um, philosophical level, right? Um, mm. Theoretical level. But yeah, because it doesn't click with me, I've never really tried to explore um, any of that stuff. But uh, probably good for me. I feel like yeah. when, you, when you read um, like analytic philosophy, right? Like it doesn't click with you, but mm. it's helpful. Mm. I should probably read some of that stuff too. Yeah, I mean, so I, yeah, it, it does. It kind of just, you know, I mean, obviously I, I jokingly talk about going to the fucking woods and living my Walden life all the time. So You're not joking, though. No, I'm not really? joking, yeah. No, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm not joking. Yeah, that's a very good point. So, I mean, there is a sense in which, like, Thoreau has influenced me, sort of, right? And um, there are other, like, essays that I've, that I've read from within like the transcendentalist corpus that where I'm kind of like, yeah, I kind of vibe with that kind of stuff, you know? So I kind of like, it just kind of does, it just resonates with me, I think is the best way for me to put it, you know? Yeah. I think that totally makes sense. Um, I think it's good to, to take things that at an effective level or an immediate level don't have any resonance and then still work with it. 
um, and see what it does to you. You know, that's, that's super important, I think, which is why I think at some point we need to do like a, a piece of Dola's uh, as like a book club thing so that I can work through it with you. One, so you can help me understand it. And two, so that I'll actually finish it <laughs> and yes. not just give up. <laughs> I think that's very good. I mean, we could always do something small. You know, we could do like his essay, Imminence of Life, which we could do in one episode. Yeah, I read that. I think we read that and talked about that at some point. That was a while ago, though. It must have been a while ago. Yeah. I mean, fuck, if we should go through logic of sense or difference in repetition if you really want to do it, you know? Yeah, logic of sense would be the one, right? Because that's going to be the most, isn't that considered the most philosophical one? In the classic sense? I would think difference in repetition personally. Logic okay. of sense is still kind of f- structured a little bit weird. It's got like, uh, like, it's not even like proper chapters. I think I forget what he calls them. Does he call them like calls them like events or some shit like that? But it, or what does he call them? I can't remember. Like he he would call chapters events. Yeah, they're, they're, it's, <laughs> I, they're they're not events. I can't remember what they're called. But he calls them something <laughs> like that. It's something like that. Like movement. It's like the ninth in the eighteenth movement or something. I can't remember what it is. But it's broken up in a very strange in a very strange way. Um, difference in repetition will be the one that will be. I think it would be more frustrating. Logic of sense, I think, would be more frustrating. Difference in repetition, I think, is a little bit more formally philosophical. Okay. Yeah. So, but yeah, um, Whitman's good. I mean, I've got this little collection. It's called the Essential Whitman, and it's got a handful of of poems. That's by far the longest of the poems because that takes me to page 77 and it's only up to 134 pages so that's I'm already halfway done with this collection but mm-hmm. I'm going to I'm going to keep reading um and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to it cuz uh there's something very again seductive about about Whitman's um I, I not his style his style is I mean, I'm sure there is something like structurally and formally interesting about his style, but even just conceptually, thematically, there's something quite seductive for me about about what I've read so far of Whitman. So yeah, I recommend checking that shit out. Beautiful poem called Song of Myself. Yeah, yeah. And you can check out my little blog that I wrote where I kind of talk about uh, some unsettled feelings that I had, but that was before I finished it. And I feel like Having read the kind of button now of the poem, I, I almost feel like it retroactively modifies or changes my my sense that I that I was kind of wrestling through where I was like two thirds of the way through the poem when I wrote that blog post. But anyway, yeah, yeah. Walt Whitman, huh. good shit. Yeah, there is something really good about taking a long time to read something dense like that and doing it like every day, a piece every day. Yeah. Something very like you know we probably did lots of devotional things like that when we were younger, yeah. right? Um, and that usually doesn't have a lot of like intellectual depth to it. Um, but there's something really great about that sort of method um, because it stays with you, right? It's like a daily thing, and, and then because you do it every day, you end up thinking about it throughout the day, and your mind subconsciously is working with it. And um, I think it's really effective to do things that way. I, I, I'm dead fucking serious, man. I want to get to this point where I can just take a year and read one book. I want to do that. I want to read like one book. And I don't mean like I'll read it like once a week where I'm every day reading just only like the science of logic. You know? Yeah. That, that would just be amazing. If you think about it, if the person who you know you're reading them because they um 
have like have thought about this a lot more than you have, then like staying with it somewhat closer to the same amount of time that they did seems appropriate. Yeah, it's almost a disservice when you think about like like so my book that's out is like six years, but really it's like fifteen years of ideas that culminated at that time when I hit the last keystroke, right? But like really it's like properly like six years of work. And a motherfucker's gonna read it, like skim it and barely read it in like a week or something yeah, like that. Just to consume it. Just yeah. to consume it. And I'm like in a way that's that makes sense because I'm kind of like, you know, piggybacking off of other people's ideas and so they can kind of make the connections. And you know, if they're familiar with Marcuse, they're like, yeah, yeah, I kind of get this, whatever. But but there is something interesting about it's almost like but it's just impossible to do this, but it's almost like a kind of like uh, a respectful tarrying with a conversation partner. It becomes much more dialogical if you can take that kind of patience with it, you know? Yeah, I think so. And that's probably how, you know, philosophy was done you know, dialogically for, you know, most of its history. It's only recently that we've had the materials to have all these books and have to read them all so quickly and really just, you know, not really digest them, just kind of you know, sum them up in our mind, basically just consume them like they're a material, right? Rather than um, actually kind of really dealing with them and wrestling with them over time. Yeah, and it's so that we can reproduce them and repackage them for an audience to consume, right? So this is what's interesting, though. Like, I wonder in the academy in Greece, right? Like, how repetitive were they? Like, we think of it now like, oh, my God, it was probably just this, like, vibrant community of new ideas. No, they were probably saying the same shit and arguing about the same stuff for, like, a decade. (laughs) And then what we have are a handful of books. But those handful of books that we have are, like, 30 years of arguments over the same shit. It's like, fucking Glaucon, how many times do we have to go over the same shit over and over (laughs) and over? Right? (laughs) Yeah, that refines, man. Like, fucking, it doesn't have to be the way that it currently is. Like John Rawls, I think published theory of justice when he was like 50 something. And that was his first book. Right. Wow. He wrote two books. Like he spent like most of his career working on theory of justice. So like it doesn't have to be the case that we just consume so much every day, all the time. And we never have any time to actually sit with it and deal with it and talk about it at length. It could be different. It's just not. Yeah. And it's just so hard in the, contemporary academic environment you know oh, the yeah. all the pressures parish. are against that yeah yeah exactly you know it's and it really does it i wonder if like across the board qualitatively the work is is suffers because of that like not just the stress and anxiety of the the academics that are dealing with this publisher parish landscape but also that the quality of the work that things that are being published are kind of like well is that really publishable like is that is that a fully formed idea is that really something you're comfortable with that you're happy about that that you've wrestled with that you've made the proper connections with like are you happy with that or is this just something that you use to beef up your cv you know like oh yeah 100 percent, dude that's exactly what it is yeah and it's kind of i wonder if that then creates like a feedback loop where we feel shittier about our already precarious positions in a very competitive landscape because we're then more aware so imposter syndrome becomes even intensified because we're aware that we're under the gun and that we're producing quote-unquote shoddy work i mean i don't know if we feel that way but i'm speaking of the royal we here and assuming making a lot of assumptions but i wonder you know yeah i think a lot of people share that sentiment that just 
you know, you, you obviously earn this business because you care a lot about the work and think it's independently valuable, right? But when all the pressures are to just produce work, whether it's really ultimately valuable or not, um, yeah, that, but that puts a negative pressure on it such that you're not going to value the work as much. And it's going to reflect your own uh, sense of worth because you still think that the, that the overall um, you know, path is, is inherently valuable, but your work isn't sort of contributing towards that. And it's not that it's not the individual's fault, right? Like it's just, we grind this really beneficial and good passion down into like nothing. And it sucks. Hmm. And that's an argument for universal basic income. <laughs> <laughs> but our podcast, we do go slow through books and I really appreciate that. Yeah. We're going to have to pick one of those up here soonish in the next month or so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah? for sure. All right, all right, all right, all right. Okay, cool. Let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Yeah, yeah. So just a reminder, you can find us on Twitter uh, at owls underscore at underscore Don, as well as Insta and all that stuff. You know where to find us. You can email us at owls at donpodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave comments for the episode at owls at don.com. We are everywhere on the internet. Yes, yes, yes. And keep your eye out for the patron post that is going to open up the field for comments underneath to suggest topics for the next democracy motherfuckers episode and i think that is pretty much it unless there's anything else you gotta say to the antinatalists out there just one more thing dude what's that das vidania americanski yeah, yeah.